Good morning, everybody. Isn't it wonderful to have a place to come on Sunday morning that's somewhat warm to be able to praise the Lord? Yes. <laughs> About 15 years ago, it became very in vogue in Christian circles to talk about God's calling on our lives to make extreme changes and do amazing things for the kingdom of God. Books like Do Hard Things and Radical and Crazy Love were all the rage. They were flying off the shelves telling Christians to make radical changes to your life and do amazing things for God. And I think we all have a desire to do amazing things for God, to do something radical so that God can work through us. When we look in the Bible, is that what we're called to? I think we see quite the opposite, actually. I think we see a call for us to do for God right where we are. A call for us to be instruments in the hands of the Redeemer where he already has us, through the lives we're already living. We see a call for us just to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves right where they are, through the things we and they are already doing, for the most part, so that God can do radical things through us. See, it isn't what we do. It's what God does through those who are faithful in the little things. God does radical things, and he chooses to do them through very ordinary means. God uses ordinary people to do great things. And I think the call on Christians today shouldn't be to do anything radical. Just do the ordinary things God calls us to do so that he can do radical things through us as his church. To be right where we are, the very ordinary means of God's radical, crazy love and radical power. And in our passage today, we're going to see very ordinary people. Actually, we're going to see weak people, fearful people even sometimes sinful people, used by God to do amazing things. We're going to see people just like us, used by God to work his power in the world and to work salvation for his people. That's what God wants to do through us. That's what God did for Israel here. Let's take a look in 1 Samuel 11.1. 1. Read, then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Now, Nahash was the king of the Ammonites. It's not said here, but we'll find that out in the next chapter. Here's the question. Why would the king of the Ammonites siege Jabesh Gilead? Because we all know exactly where this is, right? We all know exactly what I'm talking about here. Well, Jabesh Gilead was on the eastern side of the Jordan. It was in the tribal inheritance of Manasseh, the tribe that was split half on the east side of the Jordan, half on the west side of the Jordan. So that means that Jabesh Gilead is in the land that Israel took from the Amorites and from Bashan, but which originally belonged to Ammon. But notice what's going on here. We talked about the political turmoil already going on within Israel. We saw that Samuel was made judge over Israel, and he also had other local judges, um, including his sons that weren't so good at it, that ran some other cities. But every city named, if you go through, where it's talked about where the judges are, they're all on the western side of the Jordan. Now add to that, think about this, the fact that a single city like Jabesh Gilead feels it's within their rights to make a treaty with a foreign king and come under his rule. I mean, this tells us how bad things really were in Israel. 
I mean, it would appear the three eastern tribes were being totally ignored at this point. We've already seen the heart of Israel in rejecting Yahweh as king because they wanted a king like the nations around them. Well, here we see Israelites that were literally willing to bow to one of those kings of the nations around them. And this is even worse. I mean, we, we've seen an earthly king that the Israelites wanted against God's will had to be an Israelite. So these tribes in the east, they, they were very far from God at this moment in time. And even though Jabesh Gilead is in the eastern tribes, realize it's not on the eastern side of those. It's pretty close to the Jordan. In other words, not only were the western tribes being ignored, but Israel was starting to lose the land already. This was pretty far into Israel. And here they're willing to lose even more. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. This gouging out, gouging out the eye thing is pretty brutal, isn't it? I mean, it sounds so terrible to our 21st century ears, and it is, it's terrible, it's brutal. But there are a few things going on here. First, we know from extra-biblical uh, writings that Nahash had made similar treaties, treaties with some of the cities of Gad and Reuben, the other two Israelite tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. So that means this has been going on for a while. Israel has been losing ground to Ammon for a while, and they've been consenting to this condition of their surrender. This is why the men of Jabesh Gilead don't go, oh, absolutely not. No, they were, they were kind of expecting this condition of a treaty with the king of Ammon. Second, this kind of thing wasn't all that uncommon in the ancient Near East in these circumstances. Because not only would, really, they would bore or cut the right eye, not gouge it out. I know that sounds so much better. But it would be a sign of their humility before their new ruler. It would be them consenting to be humbled before them, but it would also be a major hindrance to them ever rebelling against him. If you ever gone to a shooting range and fired a gun and you're right-handed, you need your right eye to see what you're shooting at. Well, the same thing is true for using a bow. So this would essentially disable the warriors of the cities that the king of Ammon was taking over. But third, and most importantly, the word here that's translated as treaty is translated 98% of the time in the Old Testament as covenant. Like when God made a covenant with Abraham or the whole nation of Israel. And the word that is always translated make when someone makes a covenant in the Old Testament, not just in the Old Testament, other ancient Near East writings, the word they would use is not make, but cut. Literally, covenants were cut. They weren't made. You cut a covenant with somebody. Well, why would they say that? Because there was always cutting involved in ratifying a covenant. There would always be blood. Always. Sometimes animals would be cut. Like when Abraham cuts all the animals in two for God to pass through when they make a covenant. But very often, there would have to be a cut to the lesser party entering into covenant. Like when Abraham entered a covenant with God, or the nation of Israel entered into covenant with God, and the men would literally be cut when they took the sign of circumcision that said they were in covenant with God. They would have to bleed to enter into covenant with God. And here, the lesser party, the men of Jabesh Gilead, would need to be cut. They would need to bleed to enter into covenant with their new ruler. Now think again about the brutality of that. I mean, that's pretty rough, right? 
But then, think about what Christ did to ratify the new covenant. Remember, when he took that cup of wine at the Last Supper, what did he say? He said, drink this wine. Why? Because it was the blood of the covenant, his blood of the covenant. Because there would, as always, have to be blood in order to ratify that covenant. And there was. And it was Christ's. Now think about the humility of Christ in doing that. I know when we think about the humility of Christ, yes, God coming in the flesh, pretty humbling. Jesus getting down on his knees to wash the feet of his apostles, pretty humbling. But taking the role of the lesser party in a covenant. He placed himself not just a little lower than the angels, he lowered himself below those he came to save. He took on our sin. The Bible tells us he became our sin. And he took the lower party in the covenant so that we could rule over sin. And then he ratified the covenant by bleeding for us. When compared with the brutality of God taking on flesh and doing all that, the cutting of an eye doesn't really seem so brutal after all, does it? So we look at the situation in Israel, in Jabesh Gilead, in the whole territory east of the Jordan, all the turmoil on the western side of the Jordan in Israel proper, and we'll be tempted to ask, wow, things have gotten pretty bad. Why would God let that happen? I mean, why did God let this happen? This, this, these were his people. Why would God let this happen to his people? And you know what? That's usually what we ask, isn't it? When something bad happens to us, or maybe to someone we love, or when our lives are thrown into turmoil for whatever reason, or when, you know, we're being oppressed from without. We ask, why did God let this happen? You know why we ask? Because we, we want a reason. Because, you know, we think that if we know the reason, it will help us endure whatever it is we're going through. Or we think, well, if I could just see what God's purpose is in this, then it wouldn't be so bad, and I'd be able to take it. If, if I just knew God would use this for good, I'd be able to get through this. Don't we already know that? Don't we already know that God, regardless of our earthly circumstances, is going to work his good and his gracious will for us? I mean, Israel should have known that too, right? The men of Jabesh Gilead should have known that. They had all seen what God had already done. God had earned their trust. None of this was out of God's sovereign control. And we'll see, God will use these circumstances to sovereignly place David on the throne and bring Israel peace and prosperity like they had never known before. And ultimately, he used every horrible, brutal circumstance to put Christ on the throne, to bring us peace, to prosper us in ways we couldn't prosper for ourselves. And we can be sure God still does and always will use our circumstances to further his plan until the day that Christ comes and he completes the plan and we see him with our own eyes. Praise God. And here the men of Jabesh Gilead and all of Israel, they were about to see God use far less than perfect circumstances for them. And he was going to use very ordinary people to accomplish it. Now remember, as I said, Israel was in political turmoil. 
We see they were losing the land. The enemy was making progress, moving further into Israel. They were losing the battle. Another city here was about to fall. They were ready to make a covenant with the enemy and serve them, and they were ready to bleed to make it happen. Things were very bad. Things were going to get worse. Unless there was a savior. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. Now this may seem at first blush like a pretty silly thing for Nahash to agree to, right? Like why would he do this? Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead are saying to him, let us see if the rest of Israel wants us. If the rest of Israel will fight for us, then we're not going to surrender. But if not, then we will. Then we're yours. See, this would be saving Nahash really a, a, a whole bunch of trouble. Because if he took the city and it turned out Israel did want them, and all of Israel was going to come against him, well, then he'd be in trouble. This was diplomacy at work in hopes of avoiding all-out war. So these men, they send messengers to Israel. Do you want us? Will you fight for us? And they eventually get to Gibeah, where Saul is from. Now remember, we left off last week with Saul being named the king. Long live the king! And then everyone, including Saul, just went home. As they said, God uses all circumstances. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people if they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Now first, note what the people do here when they hear what's going to happen. They weep. They don't say, no way are we going to let this happen to you. We're brothers. They don't say, no, let's take up arms and defend what God has given us. They don't do what they should have done to begin with. They don't fall to their knees and pray to the God that has already helped them through everything. They say, God, help us defeat our enemies. They just weep. And then here comes Saul. See, God's working all things out. Saul was named king, goes back home, happens to be working out in the fields. Remember, he's not officially king until he leads Israel in battle. God is setting everything up here. He just happens to be coming in. Men of Jabesh Gilead are here, telling everybody what's going on. He says, what's going on? And they tell him. And God's really going to work. Verse 6, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. The Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. This is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, like in the Greek, the Hebrew word for spirit can be translated as spirit, wind, breath, breeze, things like that. There's no separate words. And the Bible plays with these options metaphorically, uses the words a few different ways, like in Ezekiel's vision of a dry bones. That word is used in that chapter nine times and translated four different ways. So you don't get this in our English Bibles, right? Like in the New Testament, the same thing happens in the Greek. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in one of the greatest passages ever, he talks about the spirit and talks about the wind, and he's playing with the words. He's making a metaphor here. But sometimes there's some play between the two Testaments. Jesus really had the Ezekiel prophecy in mind when he was talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Or like here, where the spirit of God is said to rush upon Saul, just like the spirit comes at Pentecost, and they all hear the sound of a 
rushing wind when the Spirit falls on the church. So this is the Holy Spirit. What's being pictured as the Holy Spirit, like at Pentecost, empowering his people to do the work they can't do on their own. The Spirit here comes and rushes on Saul. Why? Because Saul can't win the victory against God's enemies alone. He can't win the victory for God's people alone. He can't take back what the enemy took alone. He needed the Spirit, just like us. The Spirit empowers us to win victory over God's enemies, to take what has been lost for God. Thank you. <laughs> okay, to understand before Pentecost, the Spirit didn't permanently indwell people necessarily. We're going to see later in the book, the Spirit actually leaves Saul. But this is the Holy Spirit. This, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This has always been the work of the Holy Spirit. He comes and he works in and through ordinary people so God can do great things. And whereas man just sees their troublesome situation when things seem bad, and just weeps. The Holy Spirit takes action. The Holy Spirit works through Saul. And it says here, Saul gets angry. But you know what? Saul wasn't angry with the king of Ammon. He's angry with the people of Israel. He's angry because God's people weren't taking action. He's angry at the men of Jabesh Gilead who were just willing to roll over when the enemy appears. He's angry with the men in his own town for not stepping up and saying, I'm going to join my brother in the fight against God's enemies. So Saul, in the power of the Spirit, motivates God's people to do what's right. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. I mean, clearly Saul's anger is directed at Israel here. He gives them a wake-up call in, in the power of the Spirit, and we see the dread of Yahweh falls upon the people. So the Spirit worked through Saul, and his actions bring the people of Israel back to God. They're not afraid of Ammon anymore. See, when you have a proper fear of God, the fear of worldly opposition disappears. And in this fear of the Lord, at the prompting of a spirit inspired by Saul, the people of God are united as one. It says they come out as one man. They are together and ready to take on the opposition to God and to his kingdom. And it says that they're united, including Saul and Samuel, that they're going to lead the battle. The people come after Saul and Samuel. They come after the king and the prophet who's also the priest. God's people are led to victory by the prophet, priest, and king. So God is working here. God is working through a proper fear of him, through the Holy Spirit, through a type of Christ. God is doing amazing things through ordinary people. And that means, when God acts, that none of his people have to bleed to make any covenant. Instead, God will fight the battle and provide what they need. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. And they gave their answer 
to Nahash here. Look what they say. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. There's another play on words happening here that we miss in our English translations. What they say to Nahash is actually purposely ambiguous here. I mean, it, it may seem, reading our Bibles, like, okay, now they're trying to fool Nahash to get him to come out so they can come to battle against him. But this word translated, we will give ourselves up, is most often translated as go out, and it's always used as going out to war. It's the same word used in chapter 8 when the people insist on a king, and they say, no, but there should be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This, this is the same word being used here. Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. See, they're telling Nahash they made their determination. Remember what they said? Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. This is the same word again. But here they're talking about surrendering. Here, without the spirit, without a proper fear of God, without the prophet, priest, and king, all they can do is roll over to the world. But there is one who will save them. That's the point. They found a savior, and it's God. God will do it through his people. When they say, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you, just as easily be translated, we will go out against you. And then Nahash, do what you think you need to do. Literally, it says, tomorrow we'll go out against you and you do to us all that's good in your eyes. And remember the option for the men of Jabesh Gilead. They could surrender and lose their eyes or find a savior. And here they're saying, we're not giving up our eyes. We're coming out against you. We are going to fight in the power of the spirit and then you do what's good in your eyes. Because the people came together as one. The spirit worked in Saul. The people chose to fear Yahweh instead of their enemies and they were together. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp and in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Note something here. Note also that Saul had to come up with a strategy to do this. See, this was going to be done in God's power. It was God doing this. But Saul, the one who had received the Holy Spirit, he still had to take responsibility for what God called him to do. He still had to do something. And when we have both, like Saul, when we have the power of God working, and when we take responsibility to work as God calls us to, brothers and sisters, we can't lose. Israel came together as one with each other and with their God, and they won the battle. The enemy was scattered. No two of them were left together. And as Saul promised by the Spirit, by the time the sun was hot, it says here, by the heat of a day, salvation had come to God's people. God worked it all out. And he used weak, fearful, extremely ordinary people to do it. Because that's how God works. And no, God used horrible circumstances for the good of his people here. When they united together in him, working together with the Holy Spirit, fearing God instead of man, they saw his salvation worked and the nations be overcome for his glory. All through these horrible circumstances. God gave him the victory. Verse 12, and the people said to Samuel, who is it that said Saul 
shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, we may put them to death. Realize what just happened here. This wasn't just a battle. Saul is now king. Saul just became king by winning this battle. So the people want to know now where those worthless fellows are we saw last week. Remember how the chapter ended in chapter 10. Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. And we see here in chapter 11, this same man, Saul, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he did save them. On his own, he couldn't. But with the Spirit of God at work in him and through him, he couldn't fail. And now that he's won the battle, and now that he is officially king, like for realsies, the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Hey, now that Saul has saved us, now that he's king, let's just get rid of all the opposition to him. I mean, imagine living in a society where you're hated that much just for disagreeing politically. But Saul, by the Spirit, isn't like that. Instead, he's going to work salvation. Verse 13, but Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. There's a lot of salvation language in this passage, don't we? The men of Jabesh Gilead desperately need a savior. The spirit rushes on Saul and he says, There's going to be a savior. The Savior acts and there is salvation. Then these men who asked, can Saul really save us, are themselves saved by Saul. And then Saul tells everybody who really did all the saving. Today, Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. Yahweh has worked salvation through his spirit, through ordinary people that follow the prophet, priest, and king. Yahweh God works salvation for his people, through his people. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So Samuel calls for God's people to renew the kingdom. Um, the word can mean renew, repair, restore, that kind of thing. And commentators are split on what's really going on here. Here's the question. Is Samuel telling Israel to renew Saul's kingship or Yahweh's kingship? See, Saul had already been anointed king. He'd already been announced as the king. And now he's won his military victory. He is officially the king. So was he saying, well, now let's renew this. Let's, let's now, you know, give our allegiance to him who is now officially king. Or, based on the fact Saul just said, no, Yahweh won this battle. Yahweh has worked salvation. Yahweh is the one who won the victory. Maybe Samuel's calling for Israel to renew their allegiance to Yahweh. The true king. I mean, Samuel was against the whole earthly king idea to begin with, if you remember. And since it was Yahweh that won the battle, then he has rightfully earned the allegiance of the people. He has rightfully become king. So, who's Samuel talking about? Saul or Yahweh? Is it Saul's kingdom? Or is it Yahweh's kingdom? Yes. Listen, nobody knows how to make the best of a bad situation like our God, let me tell you. We're terrible at it, if we're honest, aren't we? I mean, we're awful at it. But God does it time and time again. See, his people, remember, had gotten their eyes off of him. They looked around instead of up. They saw the way the world did things, and they wanted to do things the same way. They wanted to conform to the world instead of their God. So they asked for an earthly king, and they got one. And there's even further division because of it. Remember, some wanted Saul, some didn't. 
Then we see this week the situation is actually even worse than we thought. This is not just about wanting to be like the nations around them. This is about actually joining themselves to the nations around them. They were very willing to do that. And the only way they weren't going to, the only way this was going to stop, is if there was a savior willing to save them. And Yahweh was that savior. He sent his Holy Spirit, and he won a decisive victory. And God works something amazing through the ordinary people that follow him. And so Samuel is calling the people to recognize Saul as God's chosen king, but to always remember that Yahweh is really the king. He wants them to see how God works. So they put themselves in so many ways in a really bad situation. They chose to have an earthly king, a bad choice. And God acted through that. They put themselves in a really bad situation in Jabesh Gilead by, by saying, yeah, we'll surrender to you if no one's going to help us. And God acted through that. There was division among God's people about their king. And God acted through that. And here Samuel realizes, wow, God made nothing but good from all of this. God made good from man's bad situation. So that's what God does. So the people needed to recognize the sovereign king, God, and they needed to recognize the means that the sovereign God sovereignly uses to accomplish his sovereign will. And he uses ordinary people. Verse 15, so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the people of Israel submit themselves to Yahweh. They recognize Saul as the king, the means that God was going to use to give them victory. They make Saul king in the presence of Yahweh, reaffirm that God is sovereign, and yet we know that you use people, God. We know you provided salvation through less than perfect circumstances. And you know, when we read the Bible, or live as an adult for about five minutes, we realize there are no perfect circumstances from our point of view, are there? But God uses all those circumstances for our good anyway. God uses us in those circumstances to accomplish his salvation. Like he used a far less than perfect Saul. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, far less than perfect men can achieve God's perfect will. And remember, God hasn't changed. God still does this. So what does that mean for us? Well, first, let's accept our responsibility as those that God has chosen to work his will in the world. Those of us who have the Holy Spirit, we are God's means of working salvation in the world. We, the church, full of very ordinary people, the church that was born when God's Holy Spirit came like a rushing wind, God says, I'm going to use you to fight the battle. And our battle is a spiritual battle. It is. We don't fight against flesh and blood, do we? And our battle is to reclaim the world for God. And God says, 
your how I'll do it. God's ready to win the victory in the world. Are we? John, 1 John, chapter 5, verse 4, it says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the men of Jabesh Gilead had a choice. Find a savior or give into the world and have their eyes gouged out. Well, we have a savior, but we still have a choice. It is a choice that we all make every day, every moment. We can choose to look to our Savior and have victory over the world. Or we can give in to the world and we can be blinded by it. But what would we choose? To do it on our own and fall to the world? Or turn to our Savior and be set free? And realize, they were given the victory, right? It wasn't a victory they won themselves. Yahweh has won victory, Saul said. You know why? Because God fights for his people. Even when we don't, God fights for us. God fights for our salvation. God is the one who wins our victory. He already won it at the cross when he bled for us. He'll win it still when he comes again. 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? God will do it every day, every moment, if we look to him instead of the world. I vote we keep our eyes and we keep them on Jesus. And let's see him work amazing things through us because our God still fights for us when we seek him. And he does it using ordinary people and ordinary means. So why we all might get hyped up on a Sunday morning sometimes, usually when Dave Howard preaches. Get all hyped up and say, I want to do great things for God. I want to do something radical. I want to do something amazing. Instead, how about we just do the ordinary things God has called us to do and see him do something amazing? This is what we're called to. God has placed us here. And just like Israel, who came together as one man, and God used that to win the victory over his enemies, when we come together as a church, brothers and sisters, like I said, we cannot fail. We are a church. There are people in this room right now that are on the top of the mountain right now that feel so close to God, that feel so empowered by his spirit, and praise God for that. Praise God. But there are those in this room right now who are fighting battles. Who are losing battles. Who feel helpless against the enemy. But when we, through the ordinary means that God gives us, by being obedient in the ordinary things, when we come together as a church, brothers and sisters, nobody, like Israel, nobody is helpless. Now, last week, I challenged all of us to get out of our comfort zone and do something a little uncomfortable. Brothers and sisters, here's my challenge this week. You need something. You're fighting a battle. Let all of us fight it with you. You find somebody a brother or sister in Christ, someone who God gave his Holy Spirit to, someone who God says, I'm going to work the victory through him 
or her. And we can't fail. Let's be the church God called us to be. Because he is a God who will still win the victory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, our sovereign king, Lord, we come before you and we bow. We thank you, Lord, because you have won the battle. You have won the battle by sending your son. You have won the battle by cutting the covenant on the cross, the covenant that promises us, Lord, that we are yours, that victory is won, that no matter what, Lord, to put it very simply, in Christ, we win. So, Lord, I pray you would take our eyes off of the world every day, every moment, and get our eyes on you, Lord, because we can't do it on our own. And, Lord, I thank you that you have put us here together as one, one body of Christ, Lord, I thank you that you have given us the means of victory in each other. Lord, I pray that as a church we would come together, that we would fight our battles with each other, Lord, so that we can take the battle outside these doors, that we can take the battle to the end of the earth, God, and defeat the enemy, to take back what was lost through sin, Lord and see souls come to faith in Christ. Set us on fire, God, so that our light burns so bright. Holy Spirit, fall like fire from heaven, like a rushing wind. Fall on us anew. Give us power. Give us confidence. Give us boldness to speak the name of Jesus. Work through us, God, and win the victory. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.